Well, good morning, church. My name is Dan Spino. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and it is good to be worshiping with you. Uh, That is what we do when we gather here. We worship, whether we're talking with our friends in the lobby, just saying hello to people at the door. As we come in here and worship and and word through prayer, through song, and as we look at God's word, we, we worship our one true King Jesus. That's why we gather. We gather as a family. So it's good to be doing that with you. I have a couple things I just wanted to say in the front here um, as we get started into our uh, our sermon. Uh, The first thing is I just wanted to uh, just take a moment uh, and say thank you for all of you that participated in our Q&A last week. Um, Some of you stayed after. um, And I just wanted to specifically, I wanted to acknowledge like it could take a lot of courage to come to a microphone and ask a question uh, and maybe even email a question in ahead of time. Like there's a level of courage that you all showed in doing that. So I just wanted to acknowledge that and say thank you. Um, And I want to tell you too that our elders love engaging in conversations like that. They love talking with you. So if there's other questions you have, you want to continue the conversation, just know that they're available. Um, we're a family. We, nothing's hidden here. We want to talk. So um, know that our elders, that's, that's their heart. Um, the second thing I want to give you, give us a heads up on is our baptism Sunday. It's coming up on Feb- uh, February 27th. Uh, we're going to be inside. Don't worry. It, we'll be inside for that celebration. Uh, we'll be doing it during both services. Um, if you have not taken this step in faith yet, if you're new to faith, perhaps the day, today is the day that you're going to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Uh, we invite you to consider taking or consider being baptized. Um, baptism doesn't save you. It's not salvific. That's not the point of baptism. It's an outward expression of this, of this faith, of this inworking faith that Jesus does in your life. Um, and it's good to do with our family, to kind of just declare the work that Jesus has done. And that's what their baptism service is all about. If you have any questions about what is baptism, or maybe you want to be baptized, we invite you to join us for a class. It's going to be online February 16th at 7 p.m., um, you can join us there. If you have any questions after today, I know we're about to get into a sermon, so some of this might get lost. Just know westshorefree.org slash baptism. Just go there. That'll have all the information. There's even a point of contact if you want to follow up with some questions. Uh, but that's where all of that is. And baptism is one of, the, one of two ordinances that Jesus gives us as a church family to continue forward to today. Uh, and the second one is communion. Um, and as Ken mentioned, I hope you grabbed one of our communion cups or if you're at home that you're ready to participate in communion. We're gonna move right from the sermon right into communion. There's not gonna be a, a, much, a bit of a pause. So um, if you need to get up now, um, feel free to do that. I do, we have gluten-free elements at the, at the doors as well. So um, just know that <clears throat> that will be coming. Excuse me, I knew this was gonna happen. That's why I brought some water with me. Feel free to talk amongst yourselves for a little bit. <clears throat> All right. Well, um, <clears throat> today we're going to be starting up our new series on First and Second Kings. Um, and by way of introduction, I want to share with you a story from when I was in seminary. Um, Stephanie and I had some friends uh, when we were in seminary um, that we just traveled with, we did life with, we hung out with on the weekends, we went to church together, we were in like small groups together. Two of these guys I still talk to, I mean, it's been like 15 years or so, 13 years. We, we talk every month, we have a call, we're still in contact on a regular basis. They're just, there's these dear friends of ours. And uh, one day we showed up at Daniel and Molly's house for dinner. They invited us over for dinner and we, we walk in and we're like, man, this is interesting. Uh, what gives? Because we're here for dinner and the table's not set. Uh, there's no forks, there's no plates, <laughs> there's no, uh, nothing like that, no, no napkins. Uh, instead, what's on the table is a bunch of newspapers <laughs> spread out. Uh, if you know me at all, I'm already grossed out. 
Um, I don't even know what's about to happen. I'm like, ah, oh, newspaper ink on food. Like, I need to wash. <clears throat> um, I have issues. Uh, so we, we walk in, and then and Molly's like, this is what we're going to do. There's a, there's a name for it. I don't remember the name. Maybe Stephanie can help me <laughs> later. She, like, takes the food, and she's like, you know, like, right in the center of the table, and then, like, we just eat. And that, that was the dinner. <laughs> a, a little jolting for us, right? In our cultural context, like that's not how we enjoy meals. Now, in other cultures, that is what they do. And I'm not trying to say good, bad here. Just in our setting, when we come to a meal, we kind of expect a table to be set generally, right? And when we have the table set, we can ready ourselves for what's about to be served, what we're about to eat, And that's kind of what we're about to do here today. That's my job for us today. Today, I'm going to be setting the table for our sermon series. Um, Again, we're starting up a new sermon series. It's called A King for the People and A People for the King. It's going to be looking at First and Second Kings. We're going to be in it for a number of weeks, a couple of months, uh, as we go through these two historical accounts. Uh, So my job today is really just to set that table so that you can be ready for, for the meal that we're about to consume. And I hope to even show you the menu. That's what I want to do today as well. We're not going to jump into any of the King stories yet today. There's a lot of background work that we need to do to get ready, um, but that's what we're going to be um, going about today, so that you can be ready to feast on God's word. Uh, because at the end of the day, that is what we do. We feast on God's word. That's what it's meant for. In Psalm 42, verses 1 through 2, the psalmist says, Like a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Such appropriate words as we think about engaging God's word. And we'll have some work we're going to have to do. I'm going to give you the heads up now. There's some work you're going to have to do in your soul, your minds, your hearts, your actions in order for you to really see that we, we connect in with this part of our history. This isn't fictional. These aren't characters in the book. This is a historical account, a part of God's salvation history for his people. And you're going to see that we can relate to them. I long for us to be hearers of God's word and doers of God's word and in love with God's word and believers of God's word. It'll stir us as we enter into God's word and see how God's word impacts us. And my motives are selfish, for sure, because I know that when we are all doing that, like, I'm going to thrive, right? I need people in my life that are hungry and thirsty and love God's word. But honestly, that's what it's like to be a part of a church family, right? That's what we do. We spur each other on in God's word. We point each other towards this relationship with our Heavenly Father. So that's what we're going to be about. So let me pray for us as we get started here. Father, I thank you again for this time to gather. I thank you for the ability to come and worship. And as we have been already been in our worship service here, we're going to continue now looking into your, your story that you've been telling throughout time and how it applies to our lives. I ask now that you would just, that you would quiet us, that you would quiet our distracted minds or distracted thoughts, that you would even quiet our phones and devices that might be distracting us, the lunch plans that we have after this, after this service, wherever our minds might be prone to wander, I ask that you would just call us back to you. Help us to hear what you have for us. Use me as you will for your vessel. Use this whole worship service as you will for your vessel 
that you would be glorified and that your people would come to know you more because that's what we want to be about. See you being glorified and drawing deeper into relationship with you. So help us in that journey now. In your name we pray, amen. All right, to get us started, kind of this setting the table metaphor, we need to do, I need to do a little bit of background work. I recognize that when we come and gather, uh, some of us are coming from all different backgrounds, all different stories. Some of us, this might be your first day in church. Maybe you've never stepped into church before. Some of you might have like, sections of the Old Testament completely memorized, right? Like, so we're all just like, there's a spectrum of our family when we gather together and that is a good, beautiful thing. So what I wanna do though, is just kind of like, just get us all on the same trajectory together. And this is how we're gonna start. A long time ago, God calls a people to himself and he takes them on a journey towards a deeper relationship with him and praise God, this God the Father is still drawing people in and taking them on a deeper relationship with him. This group of people, they're called the Israelites, were enslaved in Egypt. That's an important part of their history. They're enslaved in Egypt and they're being treated harshly. So God calls Moses, this man Moses, to lead them towards the promised land. And this isn't like the metaphorical, like, hey, we're gonna hit the promised land. Like, no, no, literally, God has a promised land set apart for his people. God calls Moses and says, I want you to take them on a journey through the desert to the promised land. This is called the exile, right? So they, they leave, they flee Egypt, this persecution. And in the exile, God gives them the law. He gives them the right order of worship and how to approach a holy God and a holy way. But because of their sinfulness and their inability to receive this instruction in their hearts, right? That's key. Their trip is delayed. And if you don't know, after 40 years of wandering and being sanctified, they're about to now enter into this promised land. And we see these people, this, this, group, this group of Israelites, they're like, they're on the precipice. They're like, there's the promised land. They're, they haven't entered it yet. They're with Moses. They're like, we can see it. We're gonna be entering it. And Moses says, before we do, I have a few things I wanna remind you. And this is the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is kind of the, 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 what comes, what happens in the book of Deuteronomy takes place between like 1000 and 1500 BC, probably close to 1400 BC is when we have these words. And Deuteronomy 17 specifically tells us that someday you will ask for a king. Someday you people are gonna come to the land and say, give us a king like all the nations around us. Like this is hundreds of years before, these, before they're even in the land. This is, what, this is what he says. Someday you're gonna do this. And this is what a king should look like then. This is what God gives Moses to tell them of what a king should look like when you ask as you enter into this land. That's in Deuteronomy 17, verses 19 through 20. Pay attention. It says, and it shall be with him, that is the king, and he shall, the king shall read it, Read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Did you catch that? When you ask for a king, the king should be tethered to God's word. That's what kings should do. Unless we think that Moses is just kind of like setting them up on the king, chapters 27 through 30 in Deuteronomy are all about like for the people. This is how you live in the land that I'm about to give you. 
This is what godly living looks like. There's blessings and there's curses. Because when you don't live according to God, like there's, there's consequences. So that's what we get in the book of Deuteronomy as we're, as we're about to enter into the land. Moses does not take them in, Joshua does. There's a man named Joshua. That's the book of Joshua. He takes them into the promised land. And as they settle in the land, we then have the book of Judges. And the, the, the Judges is this history of various men and women designated to certain geographic areas to provide some rule and guidance. And let me tell you, the results were not good. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. That's the theme of Judges. Coming out of this tradition, though, we see that some of the priests are starting to play the role of judge. They're set up. The priests are set up as judges. And that's Eli, who we read about in 1 Samuel, and, and his two sons. And they were not good men. And in their stead, God calls Solomon to come in. Samuel, sorry. God calls Samuel to come in. Samuel's the next priest, and he's set up to be the next judge. He's God's anointed man to lead the people. And here we are now in, in the book of, of 1 Samuel. And in response to all of this, in response to all these promises, like I just skipped through like hundreds of years of history. They're in the land now. The people come to Samuel and they say, we want a king. We want a king to be like the nation surrounding us. Just like they said in Deuteronomy earlier, almost a word for a word. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses four through nine, it says, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. God knew hundreds of years earlier that they were gonna say this word for word. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel being a man of God, being a priestly man, being a man that just loves his people, prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. And catch this, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me, God, from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Almost word for word from hundreds of years earlier, the people say, we want a king to be like the other nations. And more so, this desire comes from their rejecting God as their king. When you clamor for a king, you are rejecting God. God says to warn them, and Samuel does. Samuel indeed warns them, and in his warning, there's one word. There's one word that's repeated in Samuel's, in Samuel's warning there in chapter eight. It's this word, take. You see, a king in your life will take from you. He says, a king will take from you men, horses, taxes, seeds, and so much more. Because this is what kings in your life will do. They take. Kings take. Hear that again, because this is important. When you set up kings in your life, this is what they will do. They will take from you. An immediate contrast to this. God says they're rejecting me. 
in immediate contrast to this is a God who gives abundantly. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, Jesus, this triune God, he gives life. He offers it up to those whose souls are like the deers panting for the water of life that is only given to us by King Jesus. But that's getting a little bit ahead of our historical account here. Let's get back to this recap. So God, in their disobedience, he gives them over to it. He says, you want a king, you can have a king. In their human discernment, they went with the guy that will tickle their ears, the guy that looks the best, the one who will play the part, the one who is taller than all the rest. They didn't care about his heart. That stands out in the text. They did not care about his heart, his integrity, or most importantly, his worship of God. He was just the best looking king. His name was Saul. King Saul is their first king, and he proves to be a king who lacks godly character. He does some good things. We can grant him that. But ultimately, at the end of the day, he abandons God. He abandons God. We start to see kings fail. The king to follow him is probably the greatest human king, perhaps in the history of man, King David. He's described as a man after God's own heart. So the people have been warned. Saul disappoints. He ultimately turns his back and loses kingship. David's end is appointed and is the model king for all of history until King Jesus. He's referred to a man after God's own heart. He establishes the kingdom, stretching its boundaries as God's desire, this promised land. God's like, I'm not done yet. Let's push this boundary a little bit more for my people. He prepares the necessary pieces for the temple, but he doesn't actually build the temple. I think this is in First Chronicles, if you read it, the level of detail that David goes, I mean, that talks about the nails that this man is making for the temple because he so loves God, yet he is not allowed to build the temple. He brings the ark into the holy city, Jerusalem, thus uniting the ark of the covenant, the holy city, Jerusalem, and the anointed king for the first time in the history of these people. It is beautiful. And God makes a covenant with him to establish his line forever. This text in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is an important text for us. It's an important text for God's people. God makes a covenant with David. He says, your line will never fail. You will always have a king on your throne. This prophecy, this covenant is fulfilled in Jesus, whose own human lineage comes from the line of David, this line of Judah. Through David's, I'm sorry, through God's divine sovereignty, he tells David that a future son will sit on the throne and he will build this house for me. In God's amazing sovereignty, this son is one who is born from a union stemming from David's greatest moral failure, his affair with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. David fails because all kings fail but his repentance is what's modeled for us. Men will always fail, but God is quick to forgive when we repent. Because of David's heart, God forgives him and uses this new union, this new union from this, from this illicit affair and this murder, this new marriage now with Bathsheba. He marries Bathsheba to father the future king, Solomon. And because humans are prone to sin, the kingdom starts to crack and crumble from there. That's the historical kind of salvation background for our series on First and Second Kings. There's a lot of details I most certainly skipped over and left out. The first king that we'll spend time looking at starting next week is King Solomon. 
that's where we're going to start. My job today was to get us there. As we start to walk through the kings, we also hear from the prophets as well. So this is when the prophets come on the scene. They're the ones that are writing. They're the ones warning the kings. They're the ones warning for the other nations. They're the ones that are speaking out to God's people. And between the kings and the prophets, this is basically like the second half of the Old Testament. The second thing I want to share with you is just like the date and the authorship of these books, First and Second Kings. Um, to date it, it's a little tricky. It starts with Solomon's rise to the throne, which occurs around 970 BC. Uh, and then it concludes in Second Kings. We kind of see this like description of what's happening with like with Jehoiakim and yeah, they're exiled in 597, yet says something about this like kind treatment, imprisonment. So we can get close to around 560 BC. That's 400 years of history that we're going to cover in 27 chapters. We're going to have five-hour worship services. (laughs) The author, there's a few debates as to who the author is. There's a strong evidence that there's one single author covering the books of Joshua to Kings. We don't know exactly who this would be, but there's some literary and logical reasons as to why this would accord well. So it's kind of like a big historical narrative that this person is using, like using resources and using the stories that the people were carrying forward and, and writing this down for us. However, know this, its place in the canon of scripture is not disputed. This is God's word. This is God's word for us to feast on. The third thing I want to let you know about is the divided kingdom. And this is where I have to give a little bit of a warning, kind of like a spoiler alert. If you haven't read the Old Testament before, I don't know, you might want to plug your ears because this is going to be coming in a couple of weeks. Um, but I want to set you up. The kingdom fails miserably. The kingdom fails miserably. After Solomon comes to the throne, Solomon does some pretty terrible stuff. And what we learn is that God says, you know what? I'm going to take the kingdom and I'm going to rip it out of your hands and divide it into two. So first and second Kings essentially is the story of, these, of this one nation, two kingdoms. And in the North, we have Israel. So they keep the namesake. They're Israel. They're the Northern kingdom. They're established around 930 or maybe 931 BC. There is a question because their first king, Jeroboam one, uh, there's another Jeroboam two. Jeroboam one actually changes the calendar. So that kind of tells you a little bit about this guy, right? He sets up his own calendar. So like now there's some discrepancy in the dating. What we do know is that there's 10 tribes in the Northern kingdom. Uh, of the 12 tribes of Israel, 10 of them stay in the, or, or make up the, the Northern kingdom. There's 20 kings that reign in the Northern kingdom from the time they're established to their, to their exile. And what will stand out to us is that zero of them are good. There's nine dynasties or nine ruling families that are in the Northern kingdom. And in 722, at the hands of God's justice, this is God's justice for his people, 722 BC, the Assyrians, who are really described as like the systematic killing machine, it is not pretty what they do. They invented ways to harm and kill people. God uses them as his hand of justice to get the people out of the kingdom. They're exiled in 722 by the Assyrians. That's the northern kingdom. And when they're exiled, they don't come back. The southern kingdom now is Judah, also established same time frame, 930, 931. There's two tribes that make up Judah. 
And, the, and as we go through the history, you might just hear one tribe. It's actually, there's two because Benjamin is like so like just connected to Judah. It's like kind of small, like little brother, big brother kind of thing. Like they're just so united that, they're, that it's one, but it's Judah. Tribes of Judah and Benjamin are what makes up the Southern kingdom. And Rehoboam is the first king there. We'll be hearing about him in a few weeks, I think. From, he's the son of Solomon. Uh, there are 20 kings in the Southern kingdom. And I'm getting a lot of this from my seminary notes. And what I remember wrote, writing down was that we have eight that are described as good. I hesitate to tell that to you because good is such a subjective term. And even the good kings are really not that good. So I use quotes. There's a few <laughs> that are good. And there's one dynasty. Hear that. God's word. One dynasty. The line of David. The root of Jesse. And in 587... God's justice, the Babylonians come in and exile the people from the southern kingdom. It's the final exile is in 587. What we do know is that later on, we won't be covering this in our books, but later on, the people do come back to Judah. So they're exiled, but eventually some of the remnant, this is remnant theology. You've heard us talk about this before. Some of the faithful remnant come back to the land and they start rebuilding and reestablishing themselves in the land. I put a resource available online for you from um, one of my professors, Dr. Lawson Younger. I emailed him this week. I'm like, hey, I came across this chart in my notes. Can I share this? And he's like, yes, because I want God's people to know God's word. Uh, so we, there's a chart online. If you click on the sermon for today's sermon, you'll see there's some resources. Like that's where you get the sermon notes is found there. Uh, but there's a button that says divided kingdom chart. Um, just a heads up, it, it is six pages, but here's the reason why. It actually takes you through all 20 kings in the north and the south by year. It'll list out the years. You can see what king is ruling when, kind of like, because the, they overlap. And you're gonna see it as you read through First and Second Kings. It'll say, when this king in the north was ruling, this king in the south like is set up. So it kind of lays that out for you. It also shows you where all the prophets are and who's writing. So you get an idea of like which prophet is writing during which king, during what, what's going on as that prophet is writing. And then the other thing that's on there are the kings that are in the surrounding land, because that's important. Um, that both gives us a good historical account for our Bible, but it also helps us understand like what's happening in the Bible because there's going to be some kings that come in, like Hezekiah is going to interact with a king, right? And that's like, we're going to see who that king was when he was on the throne. So that's available for you if you'd like to take a look at it, if you like that level of detail. I found it helpful just kind of being able to, to, to um, just see who's ruling when and when are the prophets are writing. That was really fascinating. So all of that is by way of background. That's the context for our sermon series. So let me just say like the table's now been set before you. That's the high level overview. So now let me show you the menu of what we're gonna be feasting on. Because here's the deal. Throughout this series, you're gonna be tempted to look at these people, these kings and the people of Israel and Judah and just think to yourself, man, these people are terrible. <laughs> And just stop there. But here's what you need to hear. If you take anything away from our time together, hear this. We are no different than the people that we're going to be reading about. This history is our present. It's going to take a little bit of work for us to make these connections. But really, when we look at this, at this historical account, as we enter into this series, there are three kind of overarching themes that like build on each other that we're going to see that just take place throughout this historical account. 
There are three problems that repeat themselves. There's other things, like these aren't the only things we'll be preaching on, but this is like, these are the repeated themes, the repeated pattern that we're gonna see. These themes or problems build upon each other. They draw us today, we'd say they draw us away from King Jesus. And here they are. We treat God's word too lightly, which leads to the second. We allow and worship other kings in our lives, which then leads to we, we, we uh, fail in the same sin patterns that they fail to. So they have their own kings set up. So for them, they, they've abandoned God's word. They have kings and then there's sin. For us, we have to do a little bit more work. I, we abandon God's word. We set up kings and we just fall to the almost exact same sin patterns. The anecdote then is to love God's word, which will lead us to worshiping only King Jesus, which leads us to hating sin. So let's take them in order. First, looking at the role of God's word. As we start to pivot and understand how these books will apply to our lives, let me take you back to the end of David's reign. Remember, David is the second king. They're in the promised land. He's doing some great things for the kingdom. Um, at the end of David's reign, we, see, we hear some very important words that he shared with his son. So this is a father speaking to his son in 1 Kings chapter 2. So 1 Kings chapter 2, the first four verses. It says, when David's time drew time to die drew near, excuse me. He commanded Solomon, his son saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. And here's what he says, be strong. Show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord, your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do. And wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your son pays close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart, with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Did you hear that? David is pointing his son back to God's word. He says, remember God's word, pay attention to God's word, obey God's word. And remember the charge from God who says, pay attention to God's word. David understood that following the law was not just about obedience. This wasn't just about like, hear the word and just, and just obey it. That's it. David knows that it's about a broken contrite heart before the God. David knows that God wants man's heart. God wants man's faithfulness. These rules, these guidelines listed in the law are mechanisms that point towards faithfulness. This word of God just is God's covenantal faithfulness. David's pointing them back to this covenant that God made with his people. It's a way of life. It's an identity marker. As we look at the first 11 chapters in, in 1 Kings, if we look at the first just 11 chapters, what we're gonna see is this prescription. David says it, Solomon repeats it a couple times. Grant, I'll, give, I'll grant him that. This prescription to love God's word. David says it here, Solomon repeats it. We get to chapter 12 and all the way through the end of 2 Kings. Instead of hearing this prescription saying you should love God's word, what we get is a description saying, they didn't love God's word and they did what was evil in the, in the sight of the Lord. That's what happens. It's no longer a prescription on how to live, but rather we get this description of how each king failed to hear the word of God. And as the kings lead, the people follow. 
And let me tell you, it's not a pretty history. We get one king. We get one king past Solomon. It's Jeroboam, the guy who created his own calendar, setting up two golden calves in the northern kingdom. And if that sounds familiar to you, it should. This is the account, almost, almost exactly word for word. Jeroboam, almost word for word. He says, Here, here's your golden calves. This is Yahweh, worship, worship Yahweh. Here it is. Deviant Yahwehism. That's not God. That's not how you approach a holy God. It's just like when they're in the exile, when Aaron set up the golden calves as icons of the triune God. But what Jeroboam does is just a step, friends. It's just a step in the wrong direction. By the end of 2 Kings, we see the people are exiled. And those that are left in Judah, they take off for Egypt. That should really stand out to us. They have emotionally, physically, and spiritually moved backwards. And we're left wondering, what happened? They have abandoned the word of God. We're going to see that by the time King Josiah comes to the throne, he's one of the, one of the last kings in the southern kingdom. And this is like, just as they're about to be exiled, he finds, it says, the text says, they found the book of the law. The priest, the priest found the book of the law. You know what that means? It was hidden. This word of truth was no longer part of their everyday diet. They found it. Now, to his credit, Josiah reads it. He institutes some reforms. He does some good things. But this lack of God's word should stand out to us. And it makes me wonder, are we consistently feasting on God's word? And from what I've seen in my interactions, we fail to consistently love God's word. And this is the first connecting point to these books. And this is a really important connecting point. It's how we have a relationship with God should never forsake the word of God because when we do, we end up lost. His word is living and breathing. It's used to correct us. It shows us how to live. But do we actually hunger for this word? Do we crave God's truth? As a deer pants for streams of water, so pants my soul for you, oh God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. We all have to personally own this for ourselves, lest we drift away and end up like the people in Israel did. We need to regularly be in God's word, to to daily be in God's word, to to feast on God's word. I want you to hear his word, obey his word, love God's word, believe God's word. Devices are great, but listen, get a Bible. And if you need a Bible, come find me. Come find anybody on staff, one of our elders. We will buy you a Bible. We want you to be in God's word. And this is a note for all of us. As followers of Christ, we need to regularly be in God's word, drawing into deeper relationship to him, our heavenly father. But what I want you to understand, just one special kind of call out here to parents. Because what we see in Kings is really a story of dads and sons, if you think about it, right? If you're not demonstrating parents' love for God's word, actively pursuing God's word, 
like reading God's word where your kids can see you doing it. If you're not encouraging your kids to be in God's word, you should not be surprised when they abandon God's word. That's the story of first and second Kings. The Kings don't remember the charge that David issued and the love for God's word is lost. Instead of fathers reading and encouraging their sons to daily read God's word, like David did, we come to Josiah. And it's like, it's like they get it. They're like, what, what is this? What is this book? This is weird. And then they read it and they, they, he, tears his, he tears his clothes. He's like, we are so sinful. God, forgive us. We need the parents, you need to model this for your kids. But for all of us, for all of us, our relationship with Jesus grows as we regularly spend time in God's word. The second theme that kind of connects that we're going to see, like again, throughout the whole series is this issue of kings in our lives. You see, while first and second kings is a historical account, this, this really happened. You might hear us say story or character from time to time. Give us some grace. These are real men and women in history. They live, they breathe. These are real accounts. We, they have an actual monarch over the people. We don't live in that setting. That's not our setting today. We don't have anything like that. There's no political office has the power that a king has. So perhaps what might help us as we engage in this historical sermon series would be a definition of a king for us today because God invites us into his story. So we need to understand how do we hear this story and apply it to our lives? So a good question is, what is a king? A king is anyone or anything that you allow to have authority, power, control over your life, over your decisions, your affections, and even over your worship. Let me say this again, because again, we, we don't have kings like they had kings. So our kings are different. A king is anyone or anything that you allow to have authority or power, or control over your life, your decisions, your affections, and even over your worship. Not all the kings in our lives are people. Know that. It's possible that we have multiple kings set up in our lives. And what we're going to find is that the kings we allow in our lives will fail us. Kings muscle their ways in. That's what they do. And they, they fail us. They lead us astray, just like we're going to see in First and Second Kings. It's a story of king failure over and over again, repeatedly. As kings kind of come in, they, they muscle in, we, we find that we all, all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, all of us have kings in our lives. You can call them idols if you like. Oftentimes, the idols that you have in your lives will rule over you as a king. You could just do a quick little assessment. What, what, motiv what motivated you to action this past week? What were you afraid of? What were, where were you grasping for power? Whose approval were you seeking? Where were you silent when you should have spoken up? What kept you up at night? Where were you trying to manipulate or rule a situation? You see, kings, they're indiscriminate. They can be just about anything or anyone if we allow them to. And this, by the way, includes ourselves. We might set ourselves up 
as kings in our lives. At times, it could be small steps that lead you towards a king, small steps of being silent or, or bending truth, hoarding money, evil thoughts that you have, steps of fear or defensiveness or lacking integrity. Other times, it might be a big step towards a king. You're, just, you're, just, you're all in. Unless you be fooled, the king may actually be a good person in your life as well. This person doesn't necessarily have to be out for your harm, but perhaps you start to put unfair relational expectations and hopes on this one person. I mean, a king could be a staff member here at church or a ministry or any other man or woman of God in your life. Anyone or anything you grant to have more power and influence in your life than you should can start to have improper authority over you. And you may even blindly follow them and even worship these kings. Let me just say, at times it's possible that we might say like, Jesus is king (laughs) and still serve other competing kings because our minds can be tricked and our motives can be insincere and we're led astray. And at worst, we can become like our kings. You don't have to turn there. In in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 15, it's, it's actually not even the whole verse. It's a longer verse, but there's like 10 words in the middle that just stood out to me. In the middle of this, of this verse, it says, they went after false idols and became false. This is what happens when you go after false kings. You become like them and you yourself become false. Here again, if we are honest with ourselves, we see that there's no, no different. We are no different than the people we'll be reading about in First and Second Kings. Oftentimes we set up kings in our lives as we're wandering away from the branch of life. That's the story of the people of Israel, and that's our story today. Now is a good time for me to pause and say again, every king will fail you. That means if you set a person up in your life as king, he or she will fail you. Over and over again, we're going to see that kings fail. Every king fails. Even the good kings fall short. Now, that is a bit of an overstatement. Because there is one king who will never fail. There is one king who will stand in stark contrast to every king in the, in the books of First and Kings that we're going to read about. And in contrast to every king that you might have in your life, he goes by the name of Jesus. He's referred to as the king of kings. That's his title. That's who he is. And we're told that everything, in fact, all of creation will bow down before him. And he's the only king, the only true king you need in your life. Let go of these false kings. He'll never, Jesus will never fail you. That's the story. These kings fail over and over and over and over and over. Jesus will never fail you. He invites you to himself through faith alone and promises eternal life in his kingdom. He's a king that you can trust. He's a king that can save. He's a king who will relentlessly be with you. But we can't, friends, we can't worship and follow the false kings in our lives and at the same time, worship and follow the one true king. This is a real challenge for us today, as it was for the people we'll learn about. 
Third, we'll see that their sins are no different from our sins. One, one verse that stood out to me is, is 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 33. We'll have it for you up here. This is what it says. It says, so they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from whom they had been carried away. So what's going on here is, is there's a description of these people that have come back into the land, like from surrounding nations, they settle in the land and lions start attacking them. And they're like, what do we do? And the issue is they were like, well, the issue is, is we're in God's, we're in God's turf and we're not worshiping God. So we need to worship God. So they, so they bring in priests of, of God to come in and show them how to worship God rightly. And they're like, thank you for showing us how to fear the Lord so that we can continue to serve our own gods at the same time. People from the surrounding nations are just, they're blending this worship, this right and good and true worship with what is wrong. What's good and true with what is false. And I just wonder how different are we from that image? What do we worship or who do we worship? Or let me review the list of sinfulness in this divided kingdom before they were exiled. It's, it's not a complete list, and by no means is it, a, is it a good list at all. The sexual licentiousness, I mean, there's prostitutes, man, male and female prostitutes. There's child sacrifice happening, idolatry worship, worship of other gods, power plays, fathers leading children astray, poor leadership, a lack of integrity, mistrust, hypocrisy, lies, misuse of money, greed, Pride, man, pride is just rampant through the land. These are just some of the sins. And at, at its absolute moral nadir, the lowest possible point, the people of God forsake their first love, their covenant with God and abandon his word, his structures for obedient faith. And ultimately they abandon their faith in God, our father, and stop worshiping him with their whole heart. That is their greatest sin. When you forsake God's word and set up false kings in your life, sinfulness will overwhelm you. I'm sure I left some things off the list. And while we can look at this list and say, man, these people are terrible. At the very least, we'll say, man, these people are really sinful. Wow. The sad thing is this list applies to us. I'm sure none of you, I'm sure you had to see this coming right? Would we not describe ourselves this way? These are the same sins that we wrestle with. We're really not that different. Sex and sexual identity has just kind of gone off the rails, the experimenting that's happening. And while we don't sacrifice our children to appease foreign gods, we live in a land whereby pregnancies are easily terminated without even a second thought. Misuse of money, craving power, the politicking that happens, the maneuvering, the jockeying, these are all still rampant in us. Pride is on full display. Lies are covered, hidden, and even excused. We're no different. Now, I know it's easy to maybe for us to sit here and we're worshiping like, yeah, you're right out there. It's so crazy. And no, no, I'm saying we, we're no different, church family. We wrestle with some of these exact same sins. We're called to hate sin. And perhaps we even say, I hate sin. <laughs> but honestly, I don't hate sin. I don't think you hate sin either. 
I'm a fleshly monster in desperate need of a savior. And I, I want to hate sin. I do. I really want to hate sin. That's like my prayer in life right now is help me to hate sin. But I am powerless against it, save but the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. God is calling us back to covenant relationship with him. And in First and Second Kings, through the book of the law, we know that it's like the sacrificial system is what's important. That's what kind of like, that's what shows this faithfulness. That's, that's what shows like this approaching a holy God in a holy way. But in our new covenant instituted through the blood of Jesus, we learn that Jesus himself is the way, the truth, the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. Do we really believe that though? Do we really live that on his terms, not on our terms? Our sin and our lack of hating of sin leads us astray. I know the right answer is to hate sin. I know it is, but honestly, we don't. We don't hate sin. Perhaps, maybe there's some sins that like, you know, when you see them, this righteousness kind of stirs up, this God-given righteousness stirs up, like, man, that's awful right? There's some sins we're just like, that is terrible. But then there's other sins that we are really, really comfortable with. A little too comfortable. I want you and I to learn how to hate sin, every sin. To stop kind of playing church, to stop setting up little kingdoms with false kings. I want us to hunger and thirst for the breath of life, as a deer pants for a flowing stream, so pants my soul for you. That's the menu. That's the menu of what we'll be feasting on as we explore God's word in the weeks ahead. Don't remove yourself from this part of history. This is a series, this is really like, just as an opportunity for all of us to examine our lives and really to ask, who or what are the false kings in your life that, that are leading you astray? Spend time thinking about that. What sins are you tolerating? What sins are you comfortable with? And this is a call to regularly be in God's word, to hear God's word, to obey God's word, and to love God's word. Do not forsake God's word. When we love God's word, it will lead us to worshiping only King Jesus, which leads us to hating sin. As we ponder these and ready our hearts for communion, this is when we're going to start transitioning to communion. And I recognize in first service that these cups can be a little tricky to open, so we can start getting ready now. If you're at home, you might want to get ready as well. As we ponder these and ready our hearts for communion, I want to share a quote with you from the documentary from, called The American Gospel. Some of you may have heard of this. Uh, this just comes from the progressive gospel. It's one of the, it's one of the it's a two-part series right now. This is the second one. And it may not be an exact quote, so give me some grace here. But one of the speakers said something to the effect of, no one has truly, no one has truly loved the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. No one but one man, Jesus. This Jesus lived this out in complete perfection, the greatest commandment. Only King Jesus can do this perfectly. This is why he can model godly living for us. He shows us how to approach a holy God. It is through him. And not only that, 
But Jesus does the second commandment perfectly as well. Love your neighbor as yourself. We see in John 15, Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And then this is what Jesus does for us, for those who believe. And his death is what we remember when we come to the communion table. Earlier, I highlighted that Samuel warned the people. It was in 1 Samuel chapter 8. He, he warned the people that kings take, right? Do you remember that? That was the word. The word was take. Well, in this one great act at the cross, we see that this is what King Jesus does. Jesus takes on our sin. He becomes sin who knew no sin, but he became it. He takes on our punishment for our sin. He takes on God's wrath. He takes on death. He takes and he takes and he takes all that we deserve. And then he gives. Jesus gives us new life by grace alone, through faith alone. He gives through his blood after he takes on the cross. And if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, he then invites you to the communion table. You don't have to be a member, a regular attendee of our church to join with us in communion. This is an act of faith. Perhaps today is the day that you declare Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Join us for communion, where we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. In the Gospel of Matthew, we return to that upper room, that intimate setting, when Jesus institutes this ordinance that we call communion. And what we hear and what we obey and what we love are these words of God found in Matthew 26. It says, now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it. He gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Take and drink. Let me pray for us. King Jesus, at times like this, honestly, all I want to do is just be still before you. When I come face to face with my sinfulness and face to face with your faithfulness, I'm paralyzed. 
We thank you, King Jesus, for being unlike any king ever. We thank you, King Jesus, for stirring in us this faith that allows us then to draw near to you, you draw near to us. We thank you for the work on the cross that writes our relationship with our heavenly father. And we thank you that you have not abandoned us. Help us now. As we enter into this series, even as we leave here today, help us to hear your word, to love your word, and to not set ourselves apart from your word, but to enter into it and to let you speak and do the work that you need to do in our hearts and in our souls, just chiseling away all the sin, drawing us into a deeper relationship with you so that we can truly and wholly worship you. And we do that now, Jesus. We come before you now as we conclude our worship service here this morning. We come before you one more time in song to worship you, King Jesus. And as we sing, let these words be truth. Not just, they are beautiful words, the music, the accompaniment, the voices up here. I mean, it is amazing. It's angelic, but there's more. There's truth. So let us worship in truth. Stir that in us now that we can worship you for your glory.